and uh, Tony, thanks for joining us. Uh, I've been following you for uh, a little while uh, and getting your daily email, uh, and I find uh, your information, your presentations, extremely intriguing, thought-provoking, uh, and I'll kind of kick it off by uh, just asking you, tell us a little bit about your background uh, and yourself, and uh, uh, let's start off with that. What is your background? Yeah, well, Dan, uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, basically, you know, my, my biggest thing for almost my entire life is that I've been a very active environmentalist. Um, I testified at a congressional hearing in support of a wilderness area when I was 14 years old, which was about 50 years ago. <laughs> and um, I worked as a wilderness ranger um, for a couple summers. I'm, I've always been very interested in environmental issues. And that sort of led me into the whole climate thing. And for professionally, I've done just about everything there is. I've been a school teacher, said forest ranger. Um, I started out in graphic arts, um, but my degrees are in geology. I have my undergraduate degrees in geology and my master's degrees in electrical engineering. So after I got my geology degree, I actually started out in um, uh, working at Los Alamos National Labs. I worked on um, geothermal, hot, their hot dry rock project. I worked on oil shale. Um, and then things kind of went south um, around 1980 with the geology business. So I went off and worked as a school teacher for a while and forest ranger. Then I went back to school at Rice University and got my master's in electrical engineering. And I worked for many years as doing microprocessor design at places like Intel, IBM, Apple, Motorola, ST Microelectronics. And probably just about everybody in the audience is, has used or is using a microprocessor, which I helped design. So, and that really shaped a lot, that, that engineering experience really shaped a lot of how I analyze things. You know, I was the microprocessor business, you've got this chip with billions of transistors, and every single one of them has to work perfectly. So, um, and it's a matter of life or death for the company that it does that. So, I, I sort of have this view of the world that that's how science and engineering should be done very rigorously. Rigorously, there should be lots of verification, and that everything should be done right. Um, so, but when I started analyzing the climate stuff, I just dis discovered that everything was being done wrong. Um, that the, the way that academic climate science is done, the way the models were created, was a farce. It didn't bear any resemblance to the rigor of the engineering world. Um, which, which I've been involved in for many decades. So that, that, that was really a key point for me. Um, but getting back to, um, you know, how I got interested. So when I was working at Los Alamos in 1980, my boss was a chemist, and he introduced me to this whole concept of global warming. And it seemed very plausible. You know, the, the, the general idea is, you know, you get more carbon dioxide, there's going to be more trapped radiation, temperatures are going to warm up. It, it all seemed very plausible, and, and I was pretty much of a true believer in it for decades. And in fact, in, uh, when we were having that really bad drought um, in Colorado, um, in there around the year 2001, 2002, um, I was coaching soccer 
um, several soccer teams and the city decided to shut the fields down because they were afraid of damage. And so they essentially shut down all the recreational soccer. So I went to a city council, to a Longmont city council meeting and said to him, look, with this global warming thing going on, it's just going to get worse. And there's no point shutting the fields down because the situation's not going to get any. And I gave him this argument that, well, you know, in Brazil, kids learn to play soccer on, you know, on, on cobblestones and dirt. And they have great soccer players. So there's no reason why we can't do that here in Longmont. So they bought my argument, opened up some of the soccer fields, and we were able to play that year. So that's where I was at, you know, as I was, a, I, I totally bought into the whole thing and I was sure that things were just going to get worse and it was going to get hotter and drier. And, and, and this was so, the end. Yeah. So, so, so what prompted, uh, you know, your first question is say, huh, may, you know, that doesn't sound right. Or maybe, 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 maybe there's a, a flaw in this uh, idea. Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. So in 2000, okay. So, I've done a lot of work in the UK. Um, I was managing a pro big microprocessor design project for Hitachi and ST. And I had designed teams all over the world, but one of my teams was in Bristol, England. It was during the 90s. So I was flying back and forth a lot to the UK. And um, I lived in the UK when I was in high school. Um, and you know, the UK in the 1990s was obviously much warmer than it was back in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, I would fly in the Heathrow in February and the grass was green and there were people water skiing. And so the, the whole thing, it seemed very believable that England had warmed up quite a bit over the past 30 years. But in, in 2003, and on Robbie Burns night, 2003, um, I was over, went over to talk to some venture capitalists in Cambridge. And I took the train into London for the day and coming back out on the train, we got, had this huge snowstorm. The train got stuck on the tracks outside of the train station in Cambridge, and the M11 motorway got shut down, turned into a huge parking lot. The UK government had stopped buying grit because climate scientists had told them they didn't need it anymore. And so, so the M11 turned into a giant parking lot. They had like 10,000 people stuck overnight. So that was the first thing I thought, well, I started thinking, well, if this is some sort of a linear thing where more carbon dioxide is making it warmer and ruining the snow. Why did the UK just have their first really big snowstorm in many years? Then I came back to Colorado, and, and a few weeks later, there was this massive snowstorm. Um, I don't know if you remember that snowstorm from 2003, where um, uh, some Netherlands up above Boulder had like eight feet of snow, and we had like four feet of snow down in Boulder. And once again, I was not thinking, well, this isn't what's supposed, you know, this isn't the trend that's supposed to be happening. I'm thinking maybe it's not carbon dioxide that's controlling it. So I started doing a lot of investigating. And around about 2008, you know, I'd collected enough data where I realized that I actually was pretty much of a skeptic at that point. And, and you talk about, you know, in, in some of your uh, videos, uh, you you reference back to uh, uh, data that was adjusted, um, and, and I'm not necessarily sure, uh, you know, whether it's NASA or whether it's NOAA, but you know you talk frequently about an adjustment in in from the 1930s uh, temperature data that was adjusted down, and then more recent data that was adjusted up. Yeah. Uh, 
And, and that is the data that feeds these models that create the hockey stick. Uh, and uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, the hypothesis that you're making is uh, the data is, it, it, correction is an error uh, and you know, maybe intentional for that very hockey stick purpose. Yeah, well, if you, um, that's something I could talk about for days. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you go back to, there, there was a paper from uh, NASA's James Hansen in 1999 lamenting the fact that the United States, which has by far the best and most coherent temperature record in the world, um, was not following his claimed trend that the world was heating up. He was upset that the United States was cooling and that um, droughts weren't, weren't occurring like they did back in the 1930s. And he was, very, he was obviously very troubled about this. Why isn't the United States behaving as it was supposed to? And then magically, over the next couple of years, the NASA graphs changed. Um, in 19, the, the 1999 version of the NASA U.S. temperature graph showed the 1930s much warmer than the recent years. And there was a fairly significant cooling trend from the 1930s through the end of the 20th century. But then suddenly, if, a couple years later, the graphs changed. So the 1930s got much cooler, and then 1990s got much warmer. And it was obvious that the data had been tampered with. And then successively, over time, just about every year since then, the tampering's gotten worse. The 1930s keeps getting cooler, and recent years keep getting su successively warmer. Now, there's got to be a justification for that, or, or uh, somebody's got to articulate the reason why, uh, you know, a number changes from X uh, to Y. Uh, has anybody explained that, or are you the only person out there observing it and nobody else asked no, the, questions? About it? No, lots of other people have observed it. I'm um, John Christie at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. Um, he, he, you know, done a lot of just made a lot, you know, wrote a lot about this, probably even earlier than I did. Um, and so, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty, there's no dispute about the fact that they're doing it, well, at least not in the scientific community. You know, the press will claim that they're not doing it, but the actual scientists who are doing it will admit it, that, you know, that this is something that they're doing. Um, the most common justification they use is something called the time of observation bias, uh -huh. which Explain is... Explain that. Okay. Yeah, right. So, so traditionally, traditionally, temperatures have been taken with min-max thermometers. It's sort of a U-shaped thermometer, and it has two little markers on it. One records the minimum, and one records the maximum temperature for each day. And the argument was that back in the 1930s, most people were resetting their min-max thermometers during the afternoon. And what this tends to do is it tends to double count warm days. Like, let's say that, say you reset your thermometer at five o'clock in the afternoon and it's 100 degrees. And then the next day, then a cold front comes through an hour later. Um, the second day is also going to show 100 degrees, even though it actually may have only been 60 degrees the second day. So the argument is that if you reset your thermometers in the afternoon, you're going to get your average, you're going to get double count warm days, 
And if you reset your thermometer in the morning, you're going to double count cold days. I mean, you know, it's good solid. Yeah. You know, the, the theory behind it is, is solid. Sure, I, I get it. Yeah. Um, so what they did is they, they make an adjustment downwards. And according to the NOAA literature, this adjustment is supposed to be about half a degree Fahrenheit total um, from the 1930s until the present. But the total adjustments that are being done are much larger than that. You know, we're current, the current adjustments now are more like two degrees Fahrenheit. So the time of observation bias adjustment um, only counts for about a quarter of, of what's going on. And they don't really have any sort of adequate explanation for what the rest of, of uh, the adjustment, is. yeah. <laughs> um, and I've, I've looked at the time of observation bias data too, and I have their adjustment too, and I, I think it's pretty suspect anyway. I've done experiments where I've said, okay, rather than trying to adjust the data, let's just remove all of the stations which reset their thermometers in the afternoon. And we don't have to do an adjustment and see how that compares. And if you do that, you, you, what you see is that whatever effect the time of observation bias has is much smaller than that 0 0.5 degrees and may actually be non-existent. And, and your sample size, when you, when you, when you take those out of uh, the universal sample, uh, the, the, the ones that were reset in the afternoon, uh, do you, do you uh, create a data set that's just not enough uh, for, for a, you know, uh, statistically uh, uh, accurate sample size? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and you know, that's the great thing about the United States Historical Climatology Network data set. We have a huge set of stations, 1,200 stations. They're very coherent. They've been carefully picked. You can cut that down. You can just randomly pick 50% of them or 25% of them, you know, using any algorithm you want and get almost exactly the same temperature trends um, as you do with the complete set. So yes, you, you can reduce it down by 70% and still get very, you know. A statistically valid sample. Yeah. Okay. Which is, well, and, 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 and let me just point out that compared to the rest of the world, you know, what you always hear about this global temperature record, it's a complete farce. The, the, the coverage and quality of the data in the global temperature record is a joke. You can get any shape graph you want by picking the set of stations that you want or, and by picking the methodology that you want. So when I see global temperature graphs from NOAA and NASA, I, I don't believe that they're gonna have any validity at all. Um, the US temperature data set is one of the very few data sets which I consider to be high enough quality to generate any meaningful um, trends out of. Okay. And, and so my, my next question is, is simply, a, you know, kind of a yes, no. Uh, it, you know, anybody that follows you on realclimatescience.com uh, uh, has to ask the question, are you getting paid for any of this time spent researching any of this and, and publishing these, these videos and, and uh, what have you on the website? Well, for, for many years, um, I did this just pro bono. You know, I, I wasn't getting anything for it. Um, I just did it because it was an interesting thing for me scientifically. I, I sensed that there was something wrong going on, and I just wanted to do it. It was just an interesting detective problem for it. 
Um, then I started collecting donations on my blog, which um, you know probably worked out to maybe five or six dollars an hour. You know, like <laughs> I, I probably would have probably made more money um, um, flipping burgers at McDonald's. Um, but the, the flip side was that I was losing huge amounts of money for doing this because I lost a lot of contracts. I lost a lot of jobs. You know, once companies found out that I was a climate denier, you know, a well-known climate denier, the last thing they want is, wow, the public finds out that Intel or somebody else is, has, has this famous climate denier working for them. They're going to get boycotted. Right. Yeah. And, yeah and, 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 and I know the, the term climate denier uh, yeah. is a is a very loose term. Um, you know, I, I think there's a distinction between saying, you know, uh, the climate and in my opinion, the climate's always changed. Uh, um, it's whether man made carbon dioxide and activity uh, is 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 climate change. Right. Is the definition yeah. of climate change. Isn't there a distinction uh, that needs to be made? Well, I mean, climate denier is just a derogatory term, which is used, you know, it, it's meant to be sort of equivalent to put you on the same level as a Holocaust denier, right? Yeah, it's, okay. it's the same term. It's like you're an, anyone who disputes, you know, government climate propaganda is an evil person, you know, equivalent to a Nazi or something like that. And, and, and it's, it's an intentionally designed, carefully designed term designed to disparage and, and create hatred against climate skeptics. Well, now, sure, I did, but when, I, when, I, when I listen to your videos and, and whatnot, yeah. uh, I, I think the case is that, that uh, one of the points that you frequently make is that uh, uh, the climate has always been changed. Look back 100 years and here's an example. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's denying the climate changes. Uh, and I, I think it's also, uh, weather's not climate uh, it maybe that makes people a, a climate denier too i don't know uh, kind of trying to make that distinction uh but it segues into my next question which is you know you always hear about the you know the 98 percent of you know climate scientists uh the settled science they agree that global warming is happening uh, and human beings are the main cause i say global warming uh because that's a quote i pulled out of uh, uh a, a recent uh you know, new story, uh, but but it seems to me sometimes they use uh, climate change uh, instead of global warming because of the, uh, you know, suspect of the warming aspect of it. Um, how How is it? Where, where, where does that, you know, and, and I'm sure people have heard maybe some explanation, but where is that 98%? And I guess that puts you in the 2% uh, categorically. Oh. Well, the 98% number is completely fake. You know, that's a number which um, the Obama administration came up with. I think they hired John Cook from uh, Australia to come up with a fake study, which would give them the statistics where they could say that. Um, you know, there was a famous tweet from Obama back around uh, 2013, where he said, 98% of scientists agree that climate change is man-made and dangerous and something like that. Um, and, and it was that that's, that was completely false. Um, the American Meteorological Society did a survey of their professional members that same year and found that only 52% believed that global warming was primarily man-made 
And, and among professional forecasters, the number was something like 30%. So the, so the 98% number is completely, you know, it's just a political fabrication. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with actual, you know, the beliefs of scientists. Yeah, well, I was just doing, I, actually, I was just doing, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of background work for this interview and came across, uh, I think it was an, a, a, a paper or, or a survey from, from about a year ago that affirmed the 98% number and in reading how they conducted the survey, it seemed to me that they, uh, you know, they said, well, we, we, wanna, we want to survey people who have written, you know, 20% or 20 academic papers over the last X amount of years and get them because they're the, you know, they're, they're the pros, right? Not the weather forecasters that you just talked about because you know, that's always, you're an engineer, so you're not a climate science, so we discount your opinion. So uh, as I was reading that, I thought to myself, well, isn't that kind of a glaring uh, maybe fallacy in the survey itself in that uh, these, and, and this will kind of go on to the next question, you know, the, these research uh, uh, scientists tend to be university attached and uh, anybody with any experience understands that if you want government grant money, you have to be uh, uh, preaching that gospel you know, to, to get the grant money. When you write your grant request, you know, you got to be on the right track. And I'm thinking, well, there's no wonder they wrote 20 papers is because they're getting funded for 20 papers and, and 20 papers basically preaching the message that the grant fund wants to fund, you know? Uh, so anyway, I, I, there's a question in there and that is, uh, you know, is, is that a, a valid argument about that survey that that you know if you if you ask the right people uh and you define your population that you're going to survey you can you can basically narrow it down to people who are going to say what you want to say well yeah um every everyone in the academia in climate understands that you have to you use the right words if you want to get a grant you know even if you're writing a paper which is has some skepticism in it, you have to throw out the keywords about carbon dioxide, global warming, danger, stuff like that, in order to have any chance of getting it through the peer review process. If, if you look at scientists like Dr. Bill Gray from Colorado State University, who was a good friend of mine, he was the world's leading tropical meteorologist. Um, he was the guy who invented hurricane forecasting, and um, in 1993, um, right after Al Gore became vice president, um, Gore contacted Dr. Gray and asked him if he wanted, you know, if he could attend the global warming conference in Washington, which Gore was hosting. And Bill, being the incredibly honest, good scientist that he was, he, he just said to Gore, I said, yeah, I'm happy to come to your meeting, but you need to know that I'm not a big fan of your global warming theory. So, so Dr. Gray, who had gotten research funding for his work um, every year from the 60s until 1993, suddenly got his funding cut off from the government. He never got another penny out of NOAA, even though he was considered the leading tropical meteorologist in the world, because he, he got cut off. And you can find lots and lots of stories like this. Um, climate skeptics know that they're not going to get funded. So you have to say the right word. So yeah, so, so if you purge everybody from your ranks who is a climate skeptic, 
then there's pretty, your ranks are going to have a pretty high percentage of non-climate skeptics. <laughs> yeah, know, and I guess that, that was my, I, I kind of went around uh, a roundabout way to get there, but uh, that, that's my sense too. I think there's also, and you, you can tell me maybe because uh, you uh, are in contact with people. I mean, I guess if you're on campus uh, at, at a, a major research university and, and, and you uh, uh, propose a, the, a, a hypothesis that CO2 is not uh, uh, a material effect to, to climate change, um, I, I can't imagine that that uh, your 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 peers in your department are going to take kindly to you. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you know that probably you don't even you don't have to even say anything like that. I mean, like Dr. Gray was in, tremendously respected, at, you know, as a meteorologist, just explained why Hansen's theories about feedback were wrong. You know, he he, he didn't deny that carbon dioxide was a greenhouse gas or that would cause warming. But that's not really where this, the, the alarmism comes from. The, the, everyone who's involved in this seriously knows that the first order effects of carbon dioxide are minimal. Um, and that what, what created the alarmism was when James Hansen came up with this theory of these positive feedbacks, which were gonna spiral out of control. And it's absurd, we know from geologic history that what Hansen, came up with doesn't make sense. And, and Dr. Gray had some very specific explanations for what happened, you know, things that go on with convective storms, um, which, which are negative feedbacks rather than positive. Um, and so he, he always presented very solid arguments, but I would walk through the halls with him at Colorado State University in the Atmospheric Sciences Department, and the other people in, in, in staff wouldn't even look at him. They, they, they'd look down at the ground. And, and the simple reason, which was explained to me by a tropical meteorologist in NOAA, was that he threatened their funding. Um, it wasn't yeah. that he was wrong. It was that having him in the department threatened funding for the Atmospheric Sciences Department at Colorado State University. Yeah, so, so, you, know, so I, you know, one of my questions was, why is science so agenda-driven? You just answered that question. I mean, you know, uh, kind of the old adage, follow the money, you know, uh, and you don't bite the hand that feeds you, I guess, uh, is, is probably a little bit of a truism uh, in, in this yeah. climate. Yeah, and, and, and President Eisenhower in his farewell speech in 1961 warned about exactly this, was that, um, that science was, was being con starting to be controlled by government money, that we, we had lost you know, we'd lost our private inventors and that government money was controlling everything. And he said that there were, you know, we had to be extremely careful about the danger of a scientific and academic elite seizing control of public policy, which is exactly what's happened. You know, the, politicians give money to the people who say the right things, and then they use their words, you know, to justify their political, um, you know, their policies. Yeah. So it, it's it's a very distorted situation we have right now. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, kind of going back to your work, one of the things that I find in, incredibly intriguing, uh, and, I, and I have to ask you about where you find all this stuff, but you you find so many uh, uh, news articles and papers uh, from as far back as the early 1900s. You know, some some have gone have predated that uh, that provide. Uh, a really rich historical context for uh, 
um, what, what I call weather phenomena that we observe today. You know, you, you, every time a tornado comes rolling through or we get a hurricane, uh, it, it, you know, people take that weather phenomena and, you know, say it's, it's, it's you know, climate change. Uh, but then you always are able to kind of come up with these articles that say, you know, Australia was drier back then, it's wetter now, or it's, you know, uh, right. that, that kind of refutes it from a historical perspective, uh, you know. Uh, so where do you find all that stuff? I mean, it's just good library work? No, there's, um, these days, you know, there's all kinds of digitally searchable newspaper archives out there. Um, the primary ones that I use are like uh, newspapers.com. Uh, the New York Times archives are good. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, <coughs> the uh, Australian government has a, a extremely good archive of all, uh, pretty much every Australian newspaper that's ever been published. It's called Trove. Um, New Zealand has has a good archive. There's there's lots of good sources out there, and and in other countries and foreign you know for, they have foreign language searches too. Um, so there's tons of information available out there, um, and having it digitally searchable by keyword is, you know, it just been a huge boom for doing this kind of research. You know, I can yeah, find, so, so, yeah, so, yeah. So the purpose of pulling those in, I mean, what, uh, when, when you in, incorporate those in your videos and in your uh, your your monologues, uh, uh, the purpose of that is to w frame the conversation, give historical perspective. What are you trying to accomplish with some of those? Well, so I started out as a geologist, right? And geologists were the original climate scientists. We were the people who studied the Earth's climate history because in order to do stuff like oil and gas exploration, you had to be able to look in the fossil record and understand what's, what's what the climate was like, what the depositional environment was like, and then be able to make a determination about whether you were likely for oil, oil you know, likely to have formed in that. So we were the original climate scientists before climate modelers came along, you know, about 20 or 30 years ago and hijacked that. So, you know, I consider myself to be a climate scientist as a geologist. And, uh, but our climate science is based on the actual historical record. You know, you go back to 540 million years ago to the Cambrian era when carbon dioxide levels were 15 to 20 times higher than they are now, that was the greatest explosion of life on Earth was with much higher levels of carbon dioxide. You know, with corals and shellfish and all kinds of, you know, sea life just exploded at that time. So when I hear people talking now about how these minor increases in carbon dioxide over the last century, are going to lead to ocean acidification and corals dying and, um, you know, an extinction, just the extinction of all life on earth. You know, it's all I can do is laugh because this, we, we have hundreds of millions of years of geologic history showing us that that is simply not true. You know, we're near the lowest level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now that we've had since life, you know, really began on earth 600 million years ago. So I, have, so I have this mindset of you, in order to understand the present, you have to understand the past. And so, if, so you have the long-term view, which is the geological record going back 600 million years. But we also have tons of evidence, data, just going back the last 150 years or so from newspapers. You know, every single 
tornado, every single hurricane and flood and hot day um, for the past 150 years is very thoroughly documented in in newspapers. So, so like, so it's so like I can go and look and just I, I've I, so I, I've got lots of software I've read and where I can go and look at what was the temperature like, you know, in different years on June 26 in the United States. So I find a really hot year, like June 26. Um, you know, this date in 1936, it was 114 degrees in Nebraska. Um, and it was 113 degrees in Kansas. Um, so I can go and look at a newspaper from Nebraska and Kansas and, and see what people were saying. You know, if it got up to 114 degrees in Nebraska right now, you know, people would, I was just in Nebraska this week, it was like 70 degrees. <laughs> Uh, you know, people would be going absolutely nuts. They, you know, they, if that happened now, if it was 114 degrees in Nebraska on June 26th now, you'd have all these newspapers and climate scientists say, saying they're 100% certain it was due to the increase in carbon dioxide. But we can go back and say, no, carbon dioxide levels were much lower in 1936. And in fact, 1936 was the hottest summer on record in the United States. Um, North Dakota hit 120 degrees. Oklahoma at 120 degrees. Texas at 120 degrees. You know, temperatures like that are, you know, if, it get, if Arizona gets that hot now, they're sure it's due to climate change. But back then it was North Dakota getting up to 120 degrees. So yeah, so, the, so this historical record in the newspapers combined with the temperature data set from the United States Historical Climatology Network from NOAA is an incredibly powerful combination for Say, you can say, no, it's been much hotter in the past. The 30s were much, if you, if you look at the number of 90 and 95 and 100 degree days in the United States, they've been trending downwards for the last 90 years. Um, in fact, there were a lot more hot days, afternoons in the United States prior to 60 years ago than there have been over the last 60 years. So you see over and over again, you see stories that, Hot days are getting worse. We're getting more and more hot days, and 90-degree days are becoming more common. And it's simply not true, and it's very easy to refute that. Yeah. And, in, and in fact, the National Climate Assessment buried back deep in the papers, which aren't viewed, normally viewed by the press, they say exactly the same thing. The 1930s were much hotter in the United States. Yeah, so so we only have a couple more minutes. I still yeah. got a whole laundry list of questions left, but you know we we might have to do a uh, a second interview yeah. uh, to, to kind of cover it. But um, you know, I, uh, I I I see Michael Moore, uh, Al Gore, Greta Thunberg uh, on the mainstream media arguing their case. Uh, why don't we ever see uh, people with an alternative uh, view like yourself uh, and, and kind of a you know, kind of a debate uh, uh, on it. Um, why, why don't we just see those at, at, at all? Well, well, they know that they would lose a debate, so they won't have it, right? They don't allow skeptics to voice it. You know, if if they had to debate me, they I would destroy them. So they're not going to do that. You know, I've challenged every single well-known climate alarmist country to a debate. They all know who I am. They all have me blocked on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's my that's my next question is the censorship piece of it but uh yeah right uh, but 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 michael moore though michael moore is a great example that you gave right he was a darling of the 
of the whole of climate alarmists for years and years. And then a few weeks ago, he came out with this movie showing how green energy is just a huge scam. And suddenly they turned on him. So now Michael Moore is a pariah um, because he told the truth about green energy. So and so you said, you know, Mike, you know, you won't see, you won't see him anymore because he said the wrong thing. So it, yeah, it's kind of interesting. We've we've talked about that yeah. on a couple of couple yeah. of our interviews with with yeah. some other guests and even even internally our internal intercom uh, interviews about how. Um, you know, My Michael Moore, you know, kind of came out and said the unspeakable in there. And that yeah. one, uh, like we talked about previously, you know, follow the money, uh, certainly on the green climate, but then, you know, kind of really threw it under the bus when he said, uh, uh, you know, from an environmental impact, uh, we should have just burned natural gas. Uh, yeah. And we would have been, we would have been much better off in terms of uh, climate, in terms of environment, uh, in, in just everything it takes to build a windmill or build solar, solar panels. So, um, yeah, we, we've, we've certainly talked about that. Well, it, it certainly would be helpful if people uh, were able to engage in, in a civil debate, you know, kind of uh, hear, hear your message. Uh, I certainly know that uh, you, you talk quite a bit about Twitter censoring you. We certainly see on the national news, uh, you know, Twitter and some of the other social platforms in terms of uh, 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 censorship. Um, so, uh, what, what's the resolve on that? How, 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 do you, how do you get a resolution to that? Um, well, right now what I'm doing is I'm just collecting data. Um, I'm collecting, every hour I collect statistics on Twitter um, for how many new followers I have and how many unfollowers I have. And um, so I've been doing this all through June. And so for, for the first 23 days of June, they were steadily deleting 75 followers per day, you know, give or take one or two. But it was, it was a very linear trend with, you know, an R squared of 0.999, which is, you know, you could very reliably predict how many unfollowers they were going to take away each day just based on, on the time of day that it was. Hour by hour, I could pretty much predict how many unfollowers. And then I would contact the unfollowers and None of them, except for possibly one, and he's not even sure, said they actually unfollowed me. Um, so what they're doing is they just have some sort of, some sort of algorithm to um, unfollow, have unfollowers coming at about the same rate as my new followers. But I had a big surge in followers a few days ago, and, and, then, and then Twitter adjusted their algorithm. Now they're taking away followers at a, at a rate of, steadily at a rate of 100 per day over the last three days. So the, the, the cheating is, it, it just really, uh, you know, it's very blatant. Um, and that's not their only dirty trick they do. Um, they censor all of my images. Um, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that probably 90% of the things I post on Twitter are like pictures of birds and dogs. Um, you know, I, yeah, yeah, the same the same ones that are on your website. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, format. Yeah. But but Twitter, for most people, they can't see them. It says this image may be sensitive content. <laughs> you know, it's like pictures pictures of like, like I was up filming peregrine falcons out west of Cheyenne yesterday, and you know these pictures are getting censored by Twitter as sensitive content. So they've been doing that. Um, so about six, six years ago, I, I got um, uh, suspended from Twitter for absolutely nothing. And um, 
But during the time I was suspended, a really interesting thing happened. Tom Steyer's um, publicity guy tweeted, wow, Tony Heller got, uh, has been removed from Twitter. This is huge. And at that point, I realized that you know, the people funding this whole climate alarm thing had me in their sight. They, they were very well aware of me and they had me in their sights. And they um, probably were who got me suspended. So I've been suspended a couple of times. The last time was because I made some sort of criticism of Greta, which was just, it was just completely nonsensical, the suspension. Um, so it's, um, yeah, so and they did do other things. So, you know, people tell me that they don't get notifications of my tweets. So I estimate that I would probably have uh, about 54,000 followers. I estimate I'd probably have closer to 100,000 right now if it wasn't for their algorithmic deletion of my followers. And so it's just, it just nonstop. Yesterday, YouTube censored one of my videos. Um, and I complained. And actually, YouTube restored it after that. But So Twitter has been the real problem. They're just very blatant. Okay. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we we will have to wrap up for today, but uh, you know, I'd I'd love to be able to have you come back on. Love love to hear kind of the the other side of it, which is you know your thoughts on where the climate debate's going, uh, and we can talk more specifically about the oil and gas industry uh, and how uh, the the climate uh, uh, issue is really kind of driving uh, what's called ESG uh, and and access to capital. Uh, you know, um, in, in in the markets for oil and gas companies. So lots of stuff to talk about. It's great to have you. People can find you at realclimatescience.com, right? And and what's your Twitter, Twitter handle if they want to find you on Twitter uh, before it's, they're deleted? It's Tony underscore underscore Heller, two underscores. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I, I, I would encourage everybody to kind of, uh, if, if you're at least uh, remotely uh, intrigued by uh, an argument uh, uh, that, that tries to rationalize climate change, you know, certainly visit your website, follow you on Twitter, uh, and uh, let us know what you think. Thanks for your time today, Tony, and uh, uh, we will uh, get you scheduled for another interview sometime soon. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me, Dan. Good talking to you. You bet. Have a great weekend.